The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 26, 1 through 35. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all of these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Well, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. And settled there. And from there he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you. And I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, Well, we see plainly 
that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're told that the one who delights in your word is like a tree planted by streams of water. Psalm 1 says that yields its fruit in season and that has leaves that do not wither. Quite simply this morning, Lord, we want to be that tree. So please open up your word to us today so we can be rooted in your word, nursed in your word, Sustained by your word. Holy Spirit, use the things taught in this passage to change us from within. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Several weeks ago, my family and I came to the church building on a weekday evening with some supplies that we were bringing from our house to the church. And we had a little situation. Uh, we, you know, everyone was just busy doing their thing and bringing the supplies into the building. And you know, while we were in the building, you know, we were um, just putting the supplies where they needed to go while the kids, of course, were doing their thing and playing and running around in the, the back of the auditorium here. And after about five or six minutes of that, the thought dawned on me that we were missing one of our children. So I went out to the van, which was parked on one of the top-level parking spaces here, and I discovered that, sure enough, there was our three-year-old son, Luke, uh, still in the van, strapped into his car seat, and had evidently been crying quite a bit. Like, his eyes were all red and puffy, and you know, I opened the van door, and he just looked at me with this, this glare that clearly communicated you left me here. <laughs> and he was right. I mean, everyone was just so busy doing their thing and having a good time and bringing in the supplies that we just forgot about poor little Luke out there all in the van, all alone. Uh, so hopefully that five or six minutes of being stuck in the van didn't inflict too much psychological trauma on the little guy. You know, I'm, I'm told kids are resilient, so hopefully he'll be okay. Uh, kind of reminds me of that movie, Home Alone, you know, where the young boy, Kevin McAllister, gets left at home, forgotten by his family when they go and travel somewhere for Christmas, and he's left to fend for himself for several days. So that was us uh, just a few weeks ago. And yet, in all seriousness, maybe that's similar to the way you felt during certain seasons of your life. Maybe it's the way you feel right now. I think it's relatively common for people, especially in the midst of difficult situations, to feel 
alone as they try to deal with whatever difficulties they're facing. Maybe you've lost a loved one and feel alone in your grief. Or maybe you've recently gone through a divorce and feel alone as you try to pick up the pieces of your life and move forward. Or maybe you've unexpectedly lost your job or uh, are experiencing financial hardship for another reason and you feel alone as you struggle to make ends meet. Or maybe you've been the victim of some sort of abuse and feel like you're carrying that pain alone. Or maybe you have a chronic illness or disability and feel like you're having to carry that burden alone. Or maybe you just feel depressed and aren't really sure why, but feel alone in that struggle because it it just feels like no one else understands what you're going through. There are so many reasons why we often feel alone. And many times we feel a certain distance, not only between ourselves and other people, but also between ourselves and God. Um, Sometimes, perhaps it even feels like God's forgotten us or abandoned us in the midst of our difficulties. And who knows, maybe we've failed God one too many times and he's now decided to hold us at arm's length from now on. Or so we're sometimes tempted to think. Thankfully, though, God's revealed to us a precious truth in Genesis 26 that helps us in the midst of all these kinds of struggles and experiences. As we go through this chapter, we'll see that God is present with his people. This truth is revealed through the story of a man named Isaac. God's present with Isaac throughout everything that happens in this chapter. We even find three direct declarations of God's presence with Isaac. The first declaration is in the future tense and is stated in verse 3. God says, I will be with you. The second declaration is in the present tense and is stated in verse 24. God says, I am with you. And the third declaration is in the past tense and is stated in verse 28. Some other characters who have been observing Isaac's life say to him, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Three declarations of God's presence with Isaac. So let's work our way through this passage and fill in some of the details surrounding God's presence with Isaac. The story begins in verses 1 through 3. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So we see here that Isaac finds himself in the midst of a crisis. Verse 1 tells us that there was a famine in the land. And a common response to a famine in that region of the world was to temporarily relocate to Egypt, since Egypt had the Nile River flowing through it and therefore wasn't as affected by the droughts that caused famines. However, verse 2 tells us that God appears to Isaac and tells him, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land 
and I will be with you and will bless you. So this is a substantial test of Isaac's faith. God's telling him to stay in the land that's being affected by the famine. And Isaac's even more vulnerable than most of the other people in that region because he's residing there as a foreigner and has no legal status and therefore is highly dependent on the goodwill of the pagan communities around him. So to stay in that land would be to take a huge risk. Yet God's instructions are explicit. God tells him to stay in that land and promises that if he does so, God will be with him and will bless him. God then reaffirms to Isaac the promises he had made to Isaac's father, Abraham. The story then continues in verses 6 and 7. It says, So Isaac settled to Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, uh, because she was attractive in appearance. So even though Isaac exhibits commendable faith in obeying God's instructions to stay in the land, he nevertheless also exhibits a lapse of faith in another regard. Following the example of Abraham, his father, who had told this exact same lie, by the way, on at least two previous occasions, Isaac falsely tells the Philistines that his wife, Rebekah, is his sister. He does this because Rebekah is very attractive, and he's afraid that if people know she's his wife, they might kill him in order to have her. So Isaac wavers in his belief that God is truly with him. Even though he might have claimed to believe God was with him, his actions in this particular instance show that he doesn't really believe that as thoroughly as he should. And don't we all have that struggle? Like, don't we all claim to believe certain things about God, but then live lives that at least at times, reveal that perhaps we don't believe those truths about God as much as we might like to think we do. Friends, the fact is that if you're not living it, then you don't truly believe it. Or at least you're not functioning in belief during those moments. We then read in verse 8 that when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, as you can probably tell there, when it says that Isaac was laughing with Rebekah, they weren't just enjoying a funny joke together, all right? Uh, This laughter was, we might say, a bit more intimate uh, than that. And you also may remember from earlier in Genesis that Isaac's name literally means he laughs. So what we have in this passage is a wordplay on Isaac's name. Uh, I mean, there might have been some literal laughter involved. I, I don't know, but let's just say it wasn't the kind of laughter that a brother and sister would share together. And Abimelech recognizes that and in the subsequent verses confronts Isaac and gives him a much-deserved rebuke. And you might think that at this point, God would withdraw his presence and blessing 
from Isaac. After all, Isaac had messed up pretty badly and had basically become a public embarrassment to everybody around him. Yet God doesn't do that. Instead, quite the opposite. We read in verses 12 and 13. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gave more and more until he became very wealthy. And remember, all of this is taking place in the midst of a famine, right? Scholars tell us that a hundredfold harvest would be quite rare, even in normal conditions. And so to have a hundredfold harvest in the middle of a famine was nothing short of miraculous. So there, it was very clear that God's hand was with Isaac, right? The, the, this was a result of God at work to bless Isaac. So even though Isaac had totally blown it, through his deceptive behavior, God was gracious to him and continued to be with him and bless him just as he said he would. Likewise, for those of us who are Christians today, what a blessing that God's still faithful to us, even during those times when we're unfaithful to him. He's way more consistent than we are many times. And in fact, as we continue reading in Genesis 26, God blesses Isaac so abundantly that the Philistines, among whom Isaac is residing, become jealous of him. So that King Abimelech actually has to come to Isaac and ask him to leave that area and set up camp elsewhere. So Isaac does so and goes to a neighboring territory and digs a series of wells because uh, some of the other Philistines keep taking the wells that he digs. And yet, time after time, he keeps finding water. And remember, even in the midst of the drought that's taking place. So to say that like Isaac was lucky in finding all this water and all these wells, that would be a massive understatement. Right? I mean, this is the kind of luck that I guess would make many people today at least want to I don't know, immediately hop on a plane and go to Vegas or something like that. And of course, we know that this actually wasn't luck at all, but rather yet another indicator that God was indeed with Isaac and was blessing him just as he said he would. God then appears to Isaac again and says to him in verse 24, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So we find yet another declaration of God's presence with Isaac. Isaac then responds in verse 25 by building an altar to the Lord and calling upon the name of the Lord. We then learn that Isaac has become so wealthy and so powerful that King Abimelech, you know, the same king who had asked Isaac to leave previously, he comes to Isaac along with the commander of his army and, and his advisor, and he seeks to make a treaty with Isaac. Look at verses 27 through 29. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord, here it is again, has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, 
and let us make a covenant with you. You will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So even this pagan king recognizes that God is with Isaac and therefore wants to make a tree with him just to make sure that he never ends up on Isaac's bad side. Uh, the two of them then do that and peacefully part ways once again. So as you can see from everything we've said so far, this chapter is filled with both direct statements and practical examples of how God is with Isaac. Right? We find three specific statements separately that tell us that God's with Isaac, as well as several examples of God being with him in order to bless him, such as the miraculously abundant harvest Isaac enjoys even during a famine, and the water he keeps finding even during the drought, and also the way God protects him and enables him to enjoy peace relatively with the Philistines in that area through the treaty that they make. Everywhere you look in Isaac's life, you can see God's blessing all over the place. So if you're taking notes, the main idea of this passage is quite simple. Isaac prospers because God is with him. Isaac prospers because God is with him. And as we think about the blessings Isaac experiences in Genesis 26 that are attributed to God being with him, that's a great reminder for us of how dependent we are as well on God's presence and blessing. The fact is that without God, like, we can't do anything. It reminds me of what Jesus teaches in John 15, 5. He says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know, apart from me, you can't do very much. Or apart from me, you can't do as much as you'd otherwise be able to. I mean, we might sometimes be tempted to think that in our pride, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That means apart from Jesus, we can't live godly lives, nor can we make a meaningful impact or any genuine impact for God's kingdom. And that's true not only for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. If we don't have God, we don't have anything. Like we might have more resources than we've ever had, right? We might have more people than we've ever had. We might have a bigger budget than we've ever had. Once the renovations are done, we might have a nicer building than we've ever had. But if we don't have God, then we don't really have anything. We're just as dependent on God being with us in order to make a meaningful kingdom impact as Isaac was on God being with him in order for him, in his case, to be prosperous. And that's where prayer comes in, right? To what degree are we devoting ourselves to prayer? Not just as a matter of routine, but really 
leaning on God and relying on God in our prayers? Are we making time for personal prayer with an awareness of our dependence on God? Are we faithfully gathering together for prayer, both in community groups and at the Wednesday prayer gathering, again, with an understanding that we need God's power? Friends, you just can't do the work of God apart from the power of God. And that power is obtained through prayer. In addition, as we think about how God was the source of every good thing Isaac enjoyed, it reminds us that all the good things that we have are blessings we've received from God. Contrary to what we're often tempted to assume, we don't enjoy these blessings because we've managed to somehow pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or make something of ourselves. Instead, the only reason that we have anything good is because God's been gracious to us. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And for us to act like we've acquired for ourselves the things we possess, it would be kind of like maybe the, the children of wealthy parents acting like they have earned all, all of the nice things that they enjoy. Uh, you know, imagine, for example, maybe a teenage boy who uh, his parents get him a super nice car for his 16th birthday. You know, he might be driving around that, that brand new Mercedes or BMW all over the place with his sunglasses on and, you know, uh, thinking he's the coolest person in the world. But we understand his money didn't buy that car, right? His parents bought that for him. Similarly, every good thing that we enjoy isn't a feat we've achieved, but rather a blessing we've received. So I really appreciate in Genesis 26 how Isaac builds an altar to the Lord in verse 25. That altar and the worship it facilitated is an indication that Isaac recognized that every last ounce of his prosperity came from God. Do we live with the recognition that the same is true of us and all the blessings that we enjoy? Do we humbly acknowledge God as the giver of every good thing in our lives and express appropriate thankfulness to him for those blessings? And pressing even further into this idea, do we recognize that God's given us these material blessings for a reason? He has expectations for the way we use what he's entrusted to us. So we need to get out of the, the ownership mentality that we so often have and instead embrace a stewardship mentality. Because in reality, all of the, the money that we possess actually belongs to God, right? It's God's money that he's temporarily entrusted to us 
with the expectation that we'll use it for his glory and according to his instructions. So kind of like when you entrust money to a financial advisor, you know, that advisor isn't free to use it however they want to. Right? Like if they were to take that money and, and go on a, a, a cruise to the Bahamas, let's say, like that's not cool, right? Uh, that's generally frowned upon. <laughs> There's a good chance they'd be doing some jail time for pulling a stunt like that because, humanly speaking at least, that money was yours, not theirs, and therefore needed to be handled according to your instructions, which probably did not include them going to the Bahamas. And that's the mentality that we should have when we think about the money that we possess. We should have a stewardship mentality rather than an ownership mentality. Uh, as John Wesley once said, the question that we should be asking ourselves isn't how much of my money will I give to God, but rather how much of God's money will I keep for myself. And make no mistake, the day is coming when we will have to give an account to God for how faithful we've been in managing what he's entrusted to us. So just as Isaac's prosperity in Genesis 26 was the result of God's presence with him and God's blessing in his life, all of the wealth we possess comes from God as well. And is given with the expectation that we'll use it for God's glory. Yet, as we return to this idea of God being present with Isaac in Genesis 26, there's an aspect of that thing that we haven't yet explored. And in my opinion, it's the richest and most glorious deposit for us to mine from this entire passage. The fact is that God's with us. Not just as he was with Isaac, but in an even greater way than he was ever with Isaac. Or anyone else in the Old Testament for that matter. First of all, God's come to be with us, not just spiritually or in a manner of speaking, but quite literally in the person of Jesus. In Isaiah 7.14 God had promised the one to, to come who would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then, 700 years after that, Jesus finally came and is specifically said to be the fulfillment of that Emmanuel, God with us, prophecy in Matthew 1, and 23. Jesus is Emmanuel. God has come to be with us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And the reason Jesus came was to rescue us from our sin. See, in our natural condition, understand that God isn't with us at all. He's actually against us because of our rebellion against him. Our sinful rebellion had alienated us from this holy God and had made us even deserving of God's wrath. However, this God of holiness and justice, he's also a God of love 
mercy. And God loved us so much that the Bible says he sent his own son, Jesus, on a rescue mission to save us. Jesus did that by living a perfectly sinless life and then by dying on the cross in our place and to pay for our sin. Think about that. Jesus didn't die for good people or deserving people or for people who had done something for him, like he was repaying some kind of a favor or really responding to anything good within us. No, Jesus died for sinners. As Romans 5, 6 through 8 reminds us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then three days after Jesus died and was buried, he resurrected from the dead so that everyone who puts their trust in him can be saved from their sin. That involves humbly acknowledging that there's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves and instead putting our full confidence in Jesus to rescue us. Now, just as that that old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I'll cling. That's the only way we can be rescued from our sins and made right with God. So God didn't leave us in our sins, but came to be with us in the person of Emmanuel. God was with Isaac in a certain sense in Genesis 26, but he's come to be with us in an even greater and more profound way in his son, Jesus. Yet God's presence with us doesn't stop there. After Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to not just be with his people, but actually to be in his people. That's huge. God isn't just with us as he was with Isaac in Genesis 26. He's actually taken up permanent residence inside us through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul writes, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Just as God's manifest presence was located in the Jerusalem temple during Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit resides within those of us who are Christians. So it's like each one of us is like an old, or it's like a New Testament version of the Old Testament temple. That temple language Paul uses isn't just a figure of speech or, or some kind of illustration, but an actual metaphysical reality. God resides within his people. No longer is he just with us as he was with Isaac in order to maybe bless certain aspects 
of our lives, such as you know, in Isaac's case, helping him acquire material wealth. Instead, God's presence inside us, ministering to us from within our hearts in the most profound ways. Just to name a few of the ministries that the Holy Spirit has in our lives, according to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and apply the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. He also shapes us to be more like Jesus by exhibiting the so-called fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He also stirs our affections for the Lord by pouring out God's love into our hearts. Romans 5, 5. The Spirit also empowers us for ministry to other Christians in unique ways through the use of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. He also empowers us in our witness so we can share the gospel with boldness. Acts 4.31. He even guides us in the words we say in our gospel witness so that we have no need to be anxious. Luke 12, 11 and 12. And the Spirit also provides more general guidance as well for the various decisions we make in life. Acts 16, 6 and 7. And of course, all this only scratches the surface of what the New Testament teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so the difference between the Holy Spirit being with someone, like he was with Isaac in Genesis 26, and him actually being in us, as he is in New Testament times, is truly a night and day difference. Perhaps we might compare it to uh, the difference between having a, a handy neighbor living next door who's you know, maybe happy to come over from time to time and help us with uh, some small home improvement projects, to having a full-time handyman you know, living on our property and doing major renovations on our house continually. And the best part is that the Holy Spirit's presence within us is permanent throughout our lives, in contrast to what was the case in the Old Testament. So that means we can have utter confidence that he'll be with us and indeed in us no matter what we face. You know, at the beginning of the message, we talked about how it's not uncommon for us to feel alone in the midst of the various difficulties in our lives. Yet the truth of the matter is that we're never alone. God's present within us. Even in the midst of the most difficult times, we'll ever face. I mean, think about it. He, he literally couldn't be any closer. And even when we stumble spiritually and fall back into various sins, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. Instead, He's present within us no matter what we face or how we fail. That's the confidence we can have as Christians. And it's that confidence that also empowers us in the mission that Jesus has given us of 
making disciples and, and spreading the gospel. I mean, let's not forget what we recite each Sunday at the conclusion of our worship service. Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations and then encourages us in a very deliberate way. What way is that? Behold, he says, I am with you to the end of the age. So what about you? Do you have confidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Have you ever experienced the indescribable joy of his presence and the transformative power of his ministry and just the the wonderful comfort of knowing that he's with you and indeed in you no matter what you face so that you're never alone. Now, Christianity isn't, it's not just about going to heaven when you die, but about experiencing the the real presence and power of God in your life, in the here and now. And I'll tell, I'll just say, if you're missing that in your life, you're missing everything. 